0: Start a study on the period of the judges, and we'll say more about why we call it the period of the judges in a moment. But um, nothing really helps us to better understand books of the Bible than trying to situate the books in their biblical context, and so. This quarter we'll be studying the book of Judges and the period, the time period of the Judges. There'll be different men each week that will be presenting different lessons on either a character in the Judges or a theme in the Judges or a phrase even that appears throughout the book of Judges and so it'll be helpful to go throughout this. But we also thought it'd be good to have a leadoff lesson that gives us some background to the book of Judges as a whole and what we should expect from the context. Now most people, when you mention the book of Judges, what phrase Excuse me. Comes to your mind. I'll start it off for you. There was no king in Israel. And what? Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. That phrase appears twice in Judges, Judges 17:6, And then in the last verse in Judges 21:25. half of the phrase appears in 19 1, where it says in those days, there was no king in Israel. But those are the three times you have it. And most people, when they think about the book of Judges, they think about that. There was no king in Israel. Everybody did what they wanted. That's true. But that phrase means a lot more when you situate the book of Judges in its context. Why was there no king in Israel? What does it mean that everybody just did what was right in their own eyes? Yes, there seemed to be anarchy in the days of Judges, but what are we supposed to take from that, that they did whatever they wanted? Why does that phrase appear toward the end of the book of Judges? I mean, we say it's the theme and I think it is a large part of the theme. But that phrase doesn't appear until chapter 17 and verse six and then at the end of the book. So I think some of this background will help us. I've tried my best not to hit on anybody else's topic. So if you're preaching on the judge or teaching on the judges later this quarter, you're welcome and you're on your own. So anyway. All right. The book of judges. Let's start with the time period. So there are time periods that mark the Old Testament. And I just did these for the class today, sort of in an arbitrary fashion. I've seen it done a lot better. You could break these down the way I've done them, a lot more succinct. You could have a lot more of these or even broaden them out and have a lot less. But here are what I consider to be some of the time periods of the Old Testament. And I'm just gonna go through these briefly, and then we'll talk about why they matter in relation to the judges. So you've got the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. But if you know what's going on or what time period you're in, in each Old Testament study of each book, it just helps you out a lot. So the patriarchal age is Genesis chapter one and verse one through Exodus 20 and verse 20. And that's where fathers rule It was a father rule system. God communicated directly with the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and even Moses. When you get to Exodus chapter 19 or really chapter 20, that's where God gives. Well, I skipped one. The law of Moses is in Exodus chapter 12, really, and it goes into Joshua chapter six, along with the wilderness wandering. So in that time period, Israel is in the wilderness, but also they get the law from God in Exodus chapter 20. There's the conquest of the Judges or the conquest of Canaan, Joshua chapter 6, and that goes all the way through the end of the book of Joshua in chapter 24. And then there's the period of the Judges, which isn't just the book of Judges, and we'll say more about that later, but it's from Judges chapter 1 and verse 1 all the way into 1 Samuel chapter 9. And then the United Kingdom, where all of Israel is under the monarchy. There are three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, the divided kingdom. Both kingdoms eventually go into captivity and then the southern kingdom comes home in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Again, there's a lot of different ways to break this down, but for the sake of our class tonight, we'll just use this as a brief outline and just keep your eyes, if you can see it, on the line that says the period of the judges. Just that's where we're gonna be tonight. And I just want you to focus on that and I'm gonna ask you some questions about why it's important to set the period of the judges and really the book in the context properly so we can understand it. So for example, What period of time comes before the period of the judges? What's the first one up there? The patriarchal period. Now, here's a question. Why would that matter when you read the book of Judges? What does the patriarchal period add to our understanding of the book of Judges? What's in that patriarchal period, by the way, that influences anything in the book of Judges? Can you think of anything from Genesis chapter one on into Exodus, really, chapter 20, that influences anything we know about the time period of the judges. What's in that patriarchal period? God communicated with the heads of families. Yes. Somebody else said something? There's no in the great flood. Did God make any promises in the patriarchal era? Promise to Abraham, right? We can start back a little bit before that. Genesis 3.15, there's a Messiah coming, but specifically that promise gets whittled down. First, there's just going to be the seed of woman. Who's that going to be? We don't know, but some individual. But then when you get to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Abraham, from your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And he repeats that several times. Well, knowing that, when we read of this nation's pitiful state in the period of the judges, we should be thinking this should have never been them. We know that you've seen this before with people. Somebody will see a child or somebody else acting out in school or somewhere else. And if you know their parents, somebody typically says something along the lines of, I know your mom and dad. There's no way you should be behaving like that in light of your upbringing or I know your grandparents or whoever. And there's a sort of disappointment. That's exactly what we should feel when we get to the period of the judges, primarily the book of Judges. This nation of people that did everything that was right in their own eyes, they had the promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob over and over again. God tells them these blessings are yours just by virtue of the fact that you're born into this family. There are some conditions involved, but you are born into the right family and you've got to live up to the standard. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus often rebukes the Jews for falling short of that. And he says, hey, you want to kill me, a man who's told you the truth. This is not what Abraham did. Judges. I mean, John eight, 39 and 40. All right. What's the next time period that comes before the period of the judges? The wanderer, wilderness wanderings and the law of Moses. Now, why would that be important? Why would it be important to know that Israel received the law before the book of judges and the period of the judges? What's in that time period? Wilderness wanderings, as well as the law of Moses, that will enhance our reading of the book of judges. Anything happened in that time period? What was the purpose of the law? Why did God give Israel the Old Testament law? To know right from wrong. To convict of sin. Bobby, did you say something? To let them know they're a nation. Psalm 147, verse 19 and 20 says, God gave his statutes to Israel and he communicated like this with no other nation. So they were unique. And the law of Moses tells us that they were. But... There's a little bit more than that to this. So during the period of the judges, they already had the law. The law was teaching them how to be different and distinct. In places like Exodus 19, 4 through 6, it says they were to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special people. For what purpose? To shine a light so that the nations might know that there is a God in Israel. Isaiah 49, 6 and Isaiah 42, 6. When you read the book of Judges, you should be thinking, we should be thinking, These folks had the law of God and God had told them how he wanted them to live. And as a response, response to that, they should have lived faithfully. Here's a question for us to consider about the Old Testament. Was it possible for Israel to keep the old law? Was it possible for Israel to keep the Old Testament law that God gave them? Robert gives me one of these like my face on a roller coaster. Roger gives me the same face. We've got footage of that, by the way. So what does that mean? Was it possible for Israel to keep this is key to how you view the judges and really a lot of the Old Testament. Was it possible for Israel to do what God commanded of them in the old covenant? Who's Gary? Yes, it was. They wouldn't. And God knew that. And so a Messiah is coming. But Deuteronomy 30. Go ahead and turn over there. Hold your hand in Judges. You probably are in Judges chapter one. But Gary, since you said that, are you OK with reading tonight? Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11, down through verse 14. And it's important we understand this because if we say it was impossible for them to keep the Old Testament law, we shouldn't rebuke them for behaving like they did in the judges. How could they be held accountable for just doing what we're admitting that they couldn't do? But if they could keep the law of God and God gave it to them for a purpose, then God's disappointment and even his punishment as a result of their disobedience is justified. Okay, go ahead. Let's roll, Gary. So that you can do it. I know Hebrews 8 and verse 8 says concerning the Old Testament law, finding fault with them, not the law. The problem wasn't with the Old Testament law. God didn't make it impossible to please him then, and he didn't make it impossible for us to please him in the new covenant. In fact, there are sparks of people in the Bible like David and others who had said they walked according to the law of God. That doesn't mean they were perfect, but they were faithful. So when you situate the book of Judges and that time period after the law, they had already received instruction from God and they knew how they should have behaved and they failed to do it. It's disappointing. Here's something else, though, about the law time coming before the period of the judges. What did the law say Israel needed to do with pagan nations in the promised land when they got there and why? This is important because when you get to chapter one and you see them not doing this, it shows just flagrant disobedience. They already had the command from God. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7. We will touch on the judges, but my responsibility tonight is really just to set the table for what we're going to experience in the book of Judges and the background. And I think situating it in this context, after they had already had the promises made to their forefathers, already received the law, just helps us to appreciate what's going on with their failure a little bit more. Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 1, says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, Gergeshites, Amorites, Canaanites, Parasites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. When the Lord your God gives them over to you to defeat them, then you must do what? Devote them to complete destruction. Now, if you take notes... That's going to come up later. So you just remember Deuteronomy seven and verse two. There'll be a place for you to write that in your Bible. When we get to judges, you will make no covenant with them and show them what? No mercy. You will not intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons. This is the reason why from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you will deal with them. You will break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. So the Old Testament law says this is what God wants you to do. God later says, I've set before Israel death and life. Choose life that you might live. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. The period of the law comes before the period of the judges. In our mind, we say, duh, we know that. But the writer of the book of Judges is setting this up so that when we read of their rebellion, he's going to use exact wordings. Things like... Israel didn't drive out all the nations. Well, what does this say? This says they should be complete destruction. They didn't obey. They instead rebelled. The old law also told them that if they didn't do what God said, they could expect in their in their lifetime chaos, decay, hatred, murder violence, etc. See Deuteronomy 28 and 29. So the period of Judges comes after the period of the law. And we shouldn't be surprised to read the kinds of things that we read later on. When you get to the end of the book of Judges, after you're done dealing with the individual characters, chapter 17 into chapter 21, it sounds like and it seems like you're reading a line right out of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18 and 19. And it's designed to show us what happens to a group of people who fails to do what God has said. Okay, one more. What other period comes before the period of the judges up here on the ones I have? We've done patriarchal. We've done the law of Moses. And then what's the third one up there? The conquest of the land of Canaan. And that's probably the most important one in view of what we're going to study tonight. So go to Joshua chapter one, please, in your Bible. The conquest of the land of Canaan. What is that all about? What does a conquest mean? That's a nice Bible word. What is that? Yeah, they took over the law. They took over the land of Canaan. So the book of Joshua begins by saying, Moses, my servant is dead. And then God tells Joshua in verse two, Moses, my servant is dead. Now arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Joshua is supposed to go into the land. Joshua is going to conquer. What does Joshua have to do in order to be successful? He doesn't have Moses anymore, but what or who does Joshua still have? And what does he have to do in order to be successful? It's in verses three down through verse nine, especially verses eight and nine. What does Joshua have to do in order to be successful? Be strong and courageous. That's one. He has God. Don't be afraid. Don't go to the right or the left. Anything with his Bible, Joshua one, eight. Starts with meta, ends with tape. Y'all aren't going to take the bait? Okay, Miss Vivian took it. Meditate. Meditate in the law day and night, just like Psalm 1 and verse 2. Question, how successful was Joshua in doing what he had to do to be successful? Did Joshua do what he should have done? He did. In fact, the inspired penman of the book of Joshua does everything he can to show us that Joshua succeeded. Joshua chapter two, Moses sent in spies. They went in unbelieving. Joshua sends in spies. They come out filled with courage and faith. Moses led Israel through the Red Sea. Joshua chapter three, Israel goes through the Jordan. Their own Red Sea experience, they're successful. Joshua chapter four, just so you don't forget, there are 12 memorial stones set up to remind God's people that God brought them through on dry ground. Joshua chapter five. Joshua has his own sort of burning bush experience. He meets a man called the commander of the Lord's army in Joshua chapter five. And he says just what he said to Moses before. Take your shoes off your feet. The place on which you stand is holy ground. And then finally, Joshua chapter six, the walls of what come down? The walls of Jericho and after the walls of Jericho, Israel just seems unstoppable as they defeat any and everybody in their path. You read about except maybe you could talk about A.I., but that was only because of their disobedience. But every battle that Israel fought, they were successful. Go to Joshua chapter 12. And at the end of Joshua chapter 12, this is all before the period of the judges, which has been called the darkest period in Israel's history. I just want us to see it wasn't always like this. And the fall of Israel to get them to where we go in these 21 chapters, it's a great fall. The end of this listing in Joshua chapter 21 and verse 24 says, after he lists all the kings, the king of Terza, one and all. How many kings did they defeat? 31 in all, 31 kings. And right after that, when you get to Joshua chapter 13, it says Joshua was old and well stricken in years and there was much land to be possessed. And then you get into probably some of the most tedious reading in all the Old Testament. Because from Joshua chapter 13 to Joshua chapter 21, all Joshua tells us about is how much land they conquered and what nation it went to, how much land they conquered and who did it go to. And you might be tempted if you're doing a sort of daily Bible reading schedule to jump over this passage. These little nine chapters don't do that, though, because there's a reason why God's being meticulous about telling them not only did they conquer this land, but this tribe received it. And you find the answer to that. Go to Joshua 21. Joshua 21. And this is where it all ends. This is where it all pays off. You read Joshua 13 all the way here. And can we get somebody to read nice and loud? Joshua 21, 43 through 45. God's trying to tell Israel, I did everything I said. Now, are you going to do your part? By the way, the book of Judges is really a test of that. Would Israel be as faithful to God as God had been to them? God says, I gave you all that I promised you. And if you have any doubts about it, go check the records, because there's nine chapters of detail saying every inch of land that I promised you going all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12. I gave it to you. And what does this tell us? Because right after this is the period of the judges. It tells us we can sometimes fall after we've received the greatest blessings from God. God had given them everything, all the land he promised them. He poured it into their laps and they turn around and have one of the darkest periods in their history. But right before we get to Judges, God tells them he's going to bless them. He does. He gave them all the land. And then Joshua gives probably two of the greatest human speeches in all the Old Testament in Joshua 23 and 24. We know Joshua 24, 14 and 15. Joshua pretty much. This is the summary fashion of verse 15. As for me and my house, we'll do what? Serve the Lord. And Joshua challenges the people. If you if you read Joshua 24 to serve the Lord and notice what the people say. I'm in Joshua 24 and verse 16. Joshua 24, 16. Then the people answered after Joshua says, make your choice. Far be it from us that we would forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord, our God, who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight He preserved us in all the way we went and among all the people through whom we passed and drove out before us all the people, the Amorites who dwell in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. We sometimes focus on Joshua. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. But guess who else said that? All of Israel. Question. Did they keep their word? Oh, yes, they did in Joshua's day. They did. Look at Joshua 24. This is key right before the book of Judges. Joshua 24. And notice verse 31. Just read verse 31 with me. Joshua 24, 31. Israel did what? Serve Serve the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So the people did keep their word throughout all the time period of Joshua and all the time period after Joshua. This is huge for reading the book of Judges. What does the ending of Joshua tell us about the time period of God's people? And how does it help us when we read the Judges? If they were faithful in the days of Joshua and then faithful in all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua. And then we get to the book of Judges and we know how that turns out. What does it tell us about Israel's response to all of that with Israel and the conquering of the land with Joshua and God keeping his promises? What does it teach us about human nature and about God's people? We forget Pickle? OK, so they didn't pass it on. Derek, what would you say it's not, generational. it's not generational in what sense? OK, so somewhere the baton got dropped. It went from Joshua to elders and then from elders to. Something dropped at that point. Second, Timothy two and verse two, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, the things you've heard of me among many witnesses. The same commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Also, there's a responsibility to pass on the baton. Now, you can't force the baton in anybody's hand and make them take it. But you do have to pass on the baton. And it seems somewhere along the line that got broken with Israel. Anything else about this time period? Somebody said we're forgetful. I believe David said that we're forgetful. Anything else? It tells us they had great examples out in front of them, but that still didn't keep them from being unfaithful. Israel was under her most faithful regime, not under Moses, but under Joshua. Deuteronomy 9:24, Moses says about Israel, you've been disobedient to the Lord since the day I knew you. Joshua couldn't say that. When those 603,548 people died 20 years old and upward in the wilderness, This new generation with Joshua, they stuck with it. Joshua was a great leader. They go in, they're conquering land, killing, doing everything God says. They're faithful under Joshua. And this generation we read about in the judges, at least in part, saw all of that. It didn't keep them from being unfaithful. Hebrews 11. We've got this long list of faithful individuals, the roll call of faith. But it won't do us any good unless we take it on ourselves to be faithful just like they were. They had people who had done the right thing and showed them the right way, but they decided to go their own way. Okay. Oh, Gary, go ahead. Who would the elders be? Good question. So in Israel, they had elders, but this wouldn't be elders like we would think in the pastoral sense. This would just be elder men that were leaders of tribes, so to speak. And so sometimes they would accompany these people. You think about Moses and the elders and that sort of thing. We don't know specifically the names of these people, but it was a position of a person that had influence in tribes in ancient Israel. But not in the sense that we think about the office of an elder, so to speak, today. All right. So let's go ahead and notice some of the shortcomings when they get into the land of Canaan with the judges. So we've looked at putting the book in its context as far as where it appears in the biblical storyline. They had patriarchy, the promises. They had the law of Moses. They disregarded that. So here's some things we can know and not know about the judges. The author of Judges. Who wrote the book of Judges? We don't know. Samuel, I thought somebody would say God and that would be the right answer. Yeah. So since the days of Jewish interpretation, people have said Samuel, the Babylonian Talmud says that Samuel wrote the book. But that's sort of problematic because of Judges 18 and verse 30. It says something about captivity as if captivity had already happened at this point. If it's talking about Babylonian captivity could be talking about one of these other captivities with the Philistines or somebody. We don't really know who wrote the book of Judges or when, but we know it was after the death of Joshua, and it was at a time period when God's people had a king, because it keeps saying in those days there was no king in Israel. By the time this person's writing it, whoever it is, and I'm good with Samuel too, but whoever it is, at this point there was a king. All right, number two. It's important to remember that this quarter we are studying the period of Judges and not just the book of Judges. The period of Judges goes from Judges chapter one and verse one, like you would assume, all the way into first Samuel chapter 10, which means the period of the Judges covers the book of Judges, the book of Ruth and first Samuel all the way up into chapter 10. When the first king of Israel is appointed, who is who? Who's Israel's first king? Saul. But all of that's the period of the judges when Paul's preaching in a synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia in Acts 13, 19 and 20. He says that time period was 450 years. So from Judges one all the way to 1 Samuel 10, that's the period of the judges. And throughout this quarter in this class, we're going to have lessons on all of those. We'll cover the judges, but there'll be a lesson on Ruth. There'll be a lesson on Eli and his boys. First Samuel, the first three chapters, because they served as judges. There'll be a lesson on Samuel and those things, because that's the entirety of the period of the judges. All right. Number three. Here's an outline. Victor Hamilton has this outline in his book of Old Testament history. He says you could break the book of Judges down in this way. Chapter one, verse one through chapter three and verse six says, in those days, there was no Joshua in Israel. And then chapter three, verse seven through chapter 16 with Samson. In those days, there were judges in Israel and you know who those are. And then in those days, there was no king in Israel is a simple way just to kind of look at the book. No leader with Joshua's type judges. And then there's no king. I'm going to read with you the first. No, we can do the first seven verses. Let's read Judges chapter one, one through seven. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who will go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah will go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. And Judah, that's the tribe of Judah, said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we might fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. And then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Parasites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and they fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Parasites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Okay, we'll say more about this introduction in a moment. But does anything stand out to you that's different from how the book of Judges opens after Joshua died versus how the book of Joshua opened after Moses died? Anything stand out, anything different in Judges chapter one than Joshua chapter one? They did. Well, we're going to get to more utterly destroying, but there's proof that they didn't for sure that there's still some of these folks here. But we'll get to that in a minute. But when Moses died, who stepped up? Joshua. The first thing that you read in Joshua, chapter one, Moses, my servant is dead. Joshua, go lead the people. When Joshua died, there's an immediate absence of this one man. That's the leader out in front. of. You don't find that and you won't find it again in the book of Judges. There'll be a little spurts and bright spots. And we'll read about some of them. Ehud and. Uh, Shamgar and Samson and those folks. But there is no one person to take the mantle. And you might think that an incidental detail. But here's something to consider. What's one of Israel's biggest problems throughout the book? They don't have any good what? They don't have any leadership. And right off the bat, when you open up the book, the Holy Spirit is trying to catch our attention, I believe, and say, hey, it's not like the days of Joshua. Nobody ever stood up in Israel and took the man to lead God's people as he would have them to do. They just didn't have the right type of leadership. And it becomes a problem for them. And um, they never really shake free of it. This book opens in chapter one by describing a few things. Israel's continuing to conquer the land. Now, you might read Judges chapter one and say, wait a minute, Hiram. I thought you showed us in Joshua 21, 43 through 45, that God gave them all of the land. Why are they still fighting for some of the land? The reason why, and this may go back to a passage in Joshua chapter 18 and verse two. Joshua set some of the tribes in the territories. It's like if you've ever helped anybody move. You drop the boxes off and they've got to put their own junk up after that. Right. Like you just help them get there and then it's on their own. Well, that's what Joshua does. He takes them to some of the territories and he says, "Okay, now you're strong enough to take it from here. You've got to drive the people out and defeat them. God's brought us in here. The first domino has fallen, which is Jericho. And after that, some of the other major cities. But it's up to Israel to finish the job. Each of these tribes individually. They don't do that. They do some of it, but they don't do it completely. Notice Judges 1, 1 through 5. Judah, the tribe of Judah, calls her his brother Simeon, that tribe, and they fight a tribe named Bezek or a group of people from Bezek. Adonai Bezek seems to be a ruler in this territory. How many people do they kill in verse number four? They defeat how many? Ten thousand. Ten thousand. And if you read verse six and verse seven, God's repaying this Adonai Bezek because he had done wicked things to other people. You keep reading in Judges chapter one in verses eight through ten. Judah is successful in battle and they conquer Jerusalem. And they're successful there. And in verse 18 through 21, you see more of their success. Caleb, look at Joshua chapter 1 and verse 10. We remember Caleb from the book of Numbers. He's still alive at this point. Judges chapter 1 and verse 10 says Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. And then in Judges chapter 1 and verse 20, we read of Caleb being involved in the success of overcoming that. And there's one more success story in chapter one and verse 13. Othniel, that is um, a man who is the nephew to Caleb. He captures a place called Debir. And because of that, Caleb says, you can have my daughter as your wife. That's Judges 113. And after that, the failure failures begin to mount. And here they are. Look at Judges chapter one. This is what Kevin alluded to a moment ago. Um, Judges chapter one and verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he what? What does the rest of Judges 119 say? He failed to drive them out. That's right. He didn't drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Look at Judges chapter one and verse 21. This is about the Benjamites. It says there. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Here's the parts where I would be writing in my Bible. Deuteronomy 7 2. Deuteronomy 7, 2 through 5. Remember, it said they were supposed to utterly destroy. Look at Judges chapter one and verse 27. What happens with the people of Manasseh versus the people of Bethsheim? What do they fail to do? They don't drive them out. It happens again in chapter one and verse thirty, chapter one verse thirty-one and thirty-two, and then finally with Naphtali in chapter one and verse thirty-three. In fact, at the end of chapter one, verses thirty-four down through verse thirty-six, not only did they not drive out everybody, but the Amorites continue to possess a significant portion of the land. Listen to this in Judges 1:34 through thirty-six: the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. For they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Horez and in Agalon and in Shalbim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them and they became subject to forced labor. The border of the Amor- Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabib from Cilip and upward. What do you see as the major problem with Israel dri- failing to drive out the nations? Why couldn't they do it? We've got the command to do it. They've got the promise from God that the land will be theirs. He told their fathers, the patriarchs, they've got the Old Testament law that commands them to do this. Why do you think they couldn't do it? Why didn't they successfully drive out these people? Gary says their faith. Too little effort. Wayne, they got they got complacent and there's proof for that complacency. Notice in the text it says here in the. Oh, here it is. 28, Verse 28, and this is about the people from Manasseh failing to do what they should. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they didn't drive them out completely. So we don't have to kick them out, but if they become our employees, well, that'll be good enough. As long as we just make them work, then that'll be good. But it, God didn't say put them to work. What would their continuous presence be for the people of Israel in the land? Since they didn't drive these people out, what would happen as a result of that? Since these nations continue to stay around in the area. They're going to marry some of them. Danny, a thorn, a thorn in their side. And that's what God promised them. Ignore the chapter division and go right into Judges chapter two, one through five. Now, Andrew's teaching next week and he's in Judges two about verse 11. I will not touch your text, brother. I will not. But let's do Judges two, one through five. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to a place called Bochim and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you right in the margin. Joshua 21, 43 through 45. God had kept his word to Israel. Israel, not so much with God. Verse two, you will make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You will break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they will be, as Danny mentioned, thorns in your side and they will. Their gods will be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, they lifted up their voices and they wept and they called the name of the place, Bochim, and they sacrificed there to their to their Lord. And so God tells them, because you didn't do what I said, you won't be successful. They continued. um, They didn't do what God said and they did it their own way. And as a result, he assures them that guess what? These people are going to continue to be thorns in your side. The people remain in the land, and Israel is never able to fully rid the land of them. Um, what does this tell you about faithful or about partial obedience? What does the book of Judges teach us about partial obedience? What is that? When somebody's partially obedient to God, it's unacceptable. What was that? Neither hot nor cold. Yep. Roger, you said it's as good as good as disobed. God told Saul in 1 Samuel 15 disobedience is like witchcraft and rebellion. You just do you do what you want. You don't follow through on what I've said. Now we won't be perfect in doing everything that God said. So somebody says, well, where's the balance in this? None of us perfectly do everything that God says. But there's a difference between purposefully holding back and saying there's no sin and rebellion in my life. And surely God's pleased because I've done these 20 things. And so I won't I won't straighten these other things out and I won't go all the way. And that's what you have in the period of the judges. Well, we've cleared out a lot of the land. I mean, it's comfortable enough for us to live here. We've gotten rid of a lot of the people, but they didn't do everything that God said. They weren't completely faithful. And as a result, they paid a price. And um, if you look at Judges chapter two and verse 10, notice what it says. This is a recounting of Joshua's death in Judges, chapter two, verses six through 10. But notice verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That's the elders and those folks with Joshua. And there arose another generation after them who what? Didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done in Israel. So according to verse 10, what led to this new generation being unable to do what God wanted them to do? According to verse 10, there are two things. They one Didn't what? Didn't know the Lord. And there's evidently both of those things go together. Here's a question for you. How could people growing up in Israel under the covenant law of Moses not know the Lord? What does that mean? They didn't know the Lord. They were Israelites. Their parents were Israelites. Moses was in their bloodline and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. How could it be possible that people growing up in that arrangement could wake up one day and not know the Lord? What does that mean? There's a passage in Ephesians chapter two and verse 20 when it talks about Gentile people that didn't know God. And you could think about how that'd be possible for Gentile people. But there is an identical statement in Second Chronicles 15 and verse three. And it says, for a long time, Israel was without the knowledge of God. Here's the question. How could that happen to people who were God's covenant and elect people? No teaching. Do we ever assume that people I know you can make this easy bridge to application. Do we ever assume that people already know the Bible, even in the church? Sometimes we start. Well, everybody knows this story. Everybody knows this does everybody. We must never take anything for granted with any generation. Maybe they just thought this is how it works. Joshua's generation's faithful. The elders after him. And why go through all of this teaching again? I mean, this is a long story. From Adam to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Red Sea. Listen, we're in the land now. That's all that matters. We don't have to go through the tedious nature of teaching. But you do. Every generation has to be taught again and again. Peter says, you know these things, but I'm going to stir up your pure mind by way of reminder. Second Peter one, 12 and 13. And they weren't taught. They also, though, it says, didn't know the work that he had done for Israel. So they didn't have a knowledge of God, but they also didn't know the things that he had done. OK, there are biblical things that God's done that we need to remember. New Testament Christians, the death, burial and what the resurrection. But in your life and in your family, there are specific things that God's done. And it would be a good idea to get your children and grandchildren around and say, listen, we're faithful to God and we're faithful based on what the New Testament says, God's word. And that's a great line of thinking and way to go. It's where we start. But there are also some Red Sea moments that we've had individually. And we should remind our those that come behind us and say, now, listen. God's done mighty acts. God's done mighty things. I've seen God work in my life and he'll work in your life and remind him about God's activity and God's action. Not merely intellectual, but that God is actually involved in the world more than in the world in our lives. Not as an abstract thing we just think about, but as a living person and being who lives in us and within us. They didn't have that. And as a result, if you don't think God's working and living, guess what will happen? Every man will do that which is right in his own eyes. Who's keeping tabs? Who's in charge? Anybody. That's what happened with them. Okay, here's some things to keep in mind, some help helpful... Sorry, Chuck, go ahead. That's a good point. That's a good point. So if we abandon God's commandments, no continued grace. That's right. Okay, here's some helpful tips to consider in the Judges, in the period of the Judges. Number one, we've talked about this already, but take note of the time period of the Judges. Now, the book of Judges is a part of it, but it goes all the way to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Why does that matter? It matters because when you start reading your Bible. What kind of time period was judges good or bad? Bad for the most part. When you read about people like Boaz and Ruth and Hannah and Samuel, you should take note of several things. Number one, God always keeps a faithful remnant. And number two, imagine being those people in that time period. Their faithfulness came to them at great cost. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Why is Boaz not only being a good guy, but I mean, he's going above and beyond. It's a Gentile woman, a foreign woman. The Bible's saying more to us than just Boaz was a good guy It's saying he was stellar and top notch. By the way, Ruth opens by saying in the days when the judges ruled, that's how Ruth one one opens to say, hey, this guy was great, but he was great at a time when nobody was good. And what about Ruth? And what about people like Hannah in the period of the judges? We should take care to notice the time period in which these events happen so that we don't. Well, Samuel was a good guy. He's the best judge we've got by far, head and shoulders above the others. The time period makes a difference. Here's number two. Define a judge properly. In this time period, these are not judicial judges. So this isn't Judge Judy and Judge Mathis. Okay, this is a these guys are more military leaders. The judges, the period of the judges, we're dealing more with probably like tribal chieftains. Their responsibility was to take up the sword and lead God's people in battle. Deborah may be the exception to that in chapter four. She's hearing cases as people come to her. But for the most part, the judges in ancient Israel, they were fighting battles to help God's people be successful. So when we hear judge, don't think judicial, don't think bar exam, think people fighting for their lives. Army, military warriors. It's a bloody and dark book, but they they needed to do this in order to please God. This is key for the book of Judges. This next one. Characters in the book of Judges, people are used, not always approved. God, in the period of Judges, it's so dark. God doesn't approve of everything everybody does. You're going to read about Judges that sacrifice their children. That fornicate with harlots that do all manner of things. And you might be thinking the normal way we think is anybody held up as a hero in a narrative is a good person worthy of emulation, not during the days of the judges. The days of the judges is far more about the fact that God can win with any set of scrubs you give him than it is about these individuals being good and upright people. That's not what this is about. By the way, throughout the judges, starting in chapter three with Ehud, they decline and get worse until you get to Samuel. So judges with Samuel, he's the exclamation mark of just a terrible person. That God used to do his work. There are some bright spots for sure. But these aren't really heroines or heroes that were to hold up. Some of them were, but not all. And I know Hebrews 11 says that there was Samson and Barak and Gideon in Hebrews 11:32, But it nowhere there praises their unrighteousness or their wickedness. So if somebody comes to the book of Judges and says, well, hey, you can do whatever you want. I mean, God used Samson. He did. And he used a bunch of judges that weren't good and upstanding people. But the point is more about this is how bad it got. This is the best God had to work with. than it is about them being model examples for folks to follow in the book of Judges. Really, in the whole Bible, characters are used and not always approved. So don't think of their ungodly behavior as something to emulate. And here's the next one. The book of Judges is a book about details. It reads a lot. The the book of the author of Judges by inspiration of the Holy Spirit is trying to remind us of things we already know. Genesis chapter 22. God tells Abraham to do what with Isaac up on Mount Moriah? Offer him up as a sacrifice. What is Jephthah doing in Judges 11? But not God approved. Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18 and 19. What's going on at the end of the book of Judges in chapter 17 through 21? An identical thing with a woman and a Levite man. It's a book of details. It tells us about how people look and their hair and all these various things. It's a book of details meant to show us how deeply they violated the law and hopefully to catch our attention. All right. The most prominent member in the book of Judges of the Godhead is the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to give you these for notes. I don't even know that I put these on the handout. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. But. Through over and over again in the book of Judges, you find this phrase, the spirit of the Lord came on this person, whether it's Ophniel, Gideon, Jephthah or Samson. what does the mention of God's spirit? Tell us the fact that God's spirit came on these people. What is that trying to tell us about them? The spirit of the Lord came on Samson and then he did this. The spirit of Gideon, Roger, rose to the occasion. occasion, Yes. What else? The spirit of the Lord came on this person. And as a result, they did this great feat. What is that telling us in the book of Judges? God was still working. And as long as if they could just retain that, if they could just put that in a capsule and maintain it, that's what would have led to their success. They were successful so long as God was with them. That's true about everybody. So long as God's with us, we can be successful. The spirit of the Lord continues to operate in the book of Judges. And he, the Holy Spirit, comes on these folks and they do great things. Sin's influence on a nation is a major theme in the book of Judges. Israel was under a theocracy, which means a God-ruled system. They were supposed to shine a light to the nations. They didn't do that, they failed to do that. Judges demonstrates that the wages of sin really is death. Time won't let me go over all these, but I'm going to just gonna give you a few of them. Judges 2:11. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Judges three and verse seven, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That phrase appears some seven or eight times. Chapter four, verse one, chapter four and verse 10, chapter 10 and verse six and chapter 13 and verse one. The book of Judges says the wages of sin really is death. And if we don't do what God says, Chuck mentioned, we won't have his continued grace. And it's also a note of encouragement for us that the new Israel must do better than the old Israel. They failed with all the promises and blessings for them. But we can't. Here's the last thing. We've got a minute left. When you get to the last verse in the book of Judges, it says there was no king in Israel. And what's the rest? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And the next thing you read about is the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth ends by saying, hey, this was her lineage. She had a boy named Obed and Obed gave birth to Jesse and Jesse gave birth to David. And then you go right out of that into first Samuel. And Samuel says, hey, there's a king named David. God makes a promise to David that one day there will be a king in Israel. And if everybody follows him, they'll do what's right in God's eyes. The book of Judges is supposed to whet our appetite that we need a king and a judge and a deliverer better than Samuel, better than Samson, better than Ehud, better than or Jair. And that king is ultimately Jesus who comes and gets us out of the mess of doing whatever we want and what's right in our own eyes. Looking forward to the study this quarter as we walk through the individual judges. Hopefully this has sort of set the table for what we're going to study as we make our way through this. Thank you to every man who has accepted the challenge to teach and willing to do that. Looking forward to a great study together.